Hi everyone and uh, welcome to uh, another indie game preservation interview here at HitSave. Today I have with me uh, some of the team members behind Wintermore Tactics Club. Um, please introduce yourself. We'll start with Ben. Hey, my name is Ben. I was the team lead on Wintermore Tactics Club as well as the programmer on it. My name's Kyla. Uh, I was one of two writers on Wintermore Tactics Club. And I'm Ryan, and I did combat design on the game. Awesome. And I'm Jonas Rosland, Executive Director here at HitSafe. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the Wintermore Tactics Club today. Uh, but before we talk about the game, um, I want to dive a little deeper into who you are uh, all behind the game here. So um, can you tell me a bit about how you get started in uh, game development? What was your motivation? And uh, since we have many members here of the team, which is fantastic, um, we'll kind of go around the, uh, around the clock here. Yeah, same order. Yep, that works. Sounds good. Great, yeah. I started in video games. So when I was 17, I wound up going to the University of Southern California for college in computer science, computer engineering, kind of a very normal thing. But it turned out that school had a major in video games. And I, as a 17-year-old, said, I love video games. I'm going to take this major. So I did, and when I graduated, I was lucky enough to get a job doing video games at Microsoft. Uh, I started out on the Kinect, wound up moving to the Halo games, and got to ship Halo 5. At which point I discovered AAA games aren't really the thing for me. So I wound up quitting and founding an indie studio to make the game that became Wintermore Tactics Club. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, so um, next up we have Kyle. Yeah, so uh, I grew up always wanting to be a writer from a really young age. Um, and just kind of like doing games as sort of a side hobby thing and, and studying writing and going to writing groups and... Um, then when I was around uh, 16, I got for Christmas uh, Final Fantasy X and the first Kingdom Hearts game. And it was like, oh, hey, look, games can tell stories now. Like, that wasn't true for a long time. Um, and so I kind of became more interested in this idea of, like, games as a medium to tell stories that is, like, different than other mediums and sort of what's unique about them. Um, and so then, you know, went to went to school first for creative writing and computer science in undergrad, uh, and then I also went to uh, University of Southern California for grad school uh, for their MFA interactive media program. Um, and so got my master's in fine arts there, and you know, learning about uh, games as a medium and the intersection of games and storytelling. Um, and then worked for a while with a little indie company. Um, it was then called uh, Wemo Media, um, but it's, it's had a few other names since then. I think it's WeVR now. Um, they do a big VR experience called The Blue. Um, but yeah, worked for them doing, at the time we were making an MMO screensaver. Um, Wait, what? Is, yeah, it's, I, like I could get into it, but it, <laughs> it's, it, is, it was exactly that. It was meant to be like a, an ocean screensaver, and, but you could like interact with, like you would like buy little fish 
to have in your ocean, but then you could send them to other people's oceans and they would like tell you where they visited and things like that. And it was all supporting like ocean conservation charities and stuff. Uh, so it was a pretty cool project. Well, that's really um, cool. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, that was that was what the blue originally was before it became a VR experience. <laughs> Uh, and then we then we made a little mobile game called Super Fugu, which I think doesn't exist anymore because the App Store like, you know, sheds games every like two to three years, um, if you don't update them constantly. You try months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, you you would know more about that that whole <laughs> ecosystem than I. Um, and yeah, so then you know I enjoyed working there, but uh, I was looking to move up to Seattle um, to be you know closer to some friends. Uh, so came up here and then was working on some other non-game related stuff and, you know, got pulled into this project uh, by some friends. So. Awesome. So your, your writing and, and storytelling, um, are you taking more from Final Fantasy or are you taking the um, uh, somewhat maybe nonsensical approach when uh, looking at Kingdom Hearts? Well, so <laughs> listen, tread carefully because the Kingdom Hearts series is beloved to me. Um, <laughs> I will sit and explain the plot of that game for four hours to you. Um, <laughs> mark my words. I, I would love uh, it. Uh, at some point. And then you'll move on to Kingdom Hearts 2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I really like the the sort of uniqueness of games as a medium for storytelling. Like, I like thinking about how games can tell stories through their mechanics as much as through traditional things like dialogue um, or, you know, text. And I think there's some, there's a few really neat things you can do when you force the audience member to be a participant in the medium that, you know, have to do with sort of empathy and encouraging, like, certain behaviors and thought processes that is communicates in a way that writing can't do in any other medium. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I was attracted to Final Fantasy X and Kingdom Hearts because they were doing literary things that I hadn't seen in games before. Like Final Fantasy X starts in media rest. It has a framing where, you know, it's like right before the final battle and then most of the game is like a flashback up to that point, which I'm like, I haven't ever seen that in a game before. That's really cool. And Kingdom Hearts had this weird, like, multi-franchise you know, franchise thing where you went to different places that were all from different stories and they were interwoven in interesting ways. Um, but both of those games have a very traditional, linear RPG, like, <laughs> let's just stop and have a short movie explaining what's going on kind of thing. So, um, you know, in part, my, my time at school kind of introduced me a lot more to, like, okay, but... You know what? What does the mechanic? What story do the mechanics tell? Like what? You know how do you interweave those pieces? So we, uh, myself and the other writer Mike, ended up working pretty closely with Ryan on making sure that like the combat mechanics were in support of the narrative and vice versa. Um, so that's my kind of outlook and take on on right game writing. I love it, I, and yes, I, I'm absolutely going to take you up on. Uh... Uh, your offer there around Kingdom Hearts. I, w I would love for someone to uh, explain the story to me. That's like giving me a Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would be so happy. Uh, all right, Ryan. Yeah, um, so 
my origin story, I was always a weird, lonely kid, uh, <laughs> and I grew up in a rural area, so it's kind of like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, um, and uh, usually, like, the main way I engaged with people when I was younger was by play and, like, kind of creating imaginary games with them and stuff like that, so when I first got my, like, first, like, video game console and was introduced to that and, like, playing around with computers and stuff like that, um, it was kind of like, oh, I can get a computer and like make a version of how i play with people and then just like outsource my human interaction um to <laughs> to as many people as possible and then they'll like me um so then uh yeah from basically when i was around like like as soon as i was aware that it was a thing i could be i wanted to be a game designer um even mm -hmm. more than just like player or anything it was literally like the process of making games is what i was most attracted to um so yeah kind of really focused on uh getting into a college where i could do that um and around the time i graduated high school uc santa cruz uh had a um, computer science game design program um so it was uh the typical computer science major but i had a lot of kind of media classes worked into it and a few uh game development specific courses uh so you could kind of focus on that. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, basically a week before I graduated, um, I managed to land a job as a game designer at a free to play mobile company. Um, did lots of level design on like bubble shooters for the most part uh, as a bouncer on the Bay Area. I did about almost two years at a robotics company randomly uh, working on uh, kind of toys to life stuff. Um, one thing I was just, as a developer i've always been interested in is like getting to design uh for like new systems and new challenges and everything um so ultimately uh the kind of like fast follow nature and like very profit driven nature of free to play mobile really burned me out uh and made me kind of cynical <laughs> um and there was a bunch of like major layoffs that kept happening so it kind of felt like i'm selling out and it's not paying um and i through um a friend and everything was introduced to ben um like basically right after a major layoff when i was looking for work uh and uh landed a part-time uh combat design role um on winnemore tactics club um and uh it was kind of like my first chance to like really like strike out work on like an indie project and have a lot more kind of ownership of my work and have work on a game where the main goal was you know to make the best game that we could um and with a lot of like care for the player and stuff which uh felt a lot better for me at everything um so yeah I, I picked up this job along with uh my current gig on um team meet and uh struck out to like live in my cousin's trailer in oregon and downsize a bit from my bay area life <laughs> and uh yeah i've been doing indie stuff since uh but yeah mostly mostly level design just i have a lot of experience grinding out a lot of content so one more tactics club was also like a great opportunity to make a much more polished and focused experience um how, how do you how do you just randomly spend three years in a robotics company <laughs> oh so it was two it was basically two years like one year nine months i think i did i did two projects with them um, I was, it was, um, I think Anki, uh, they did the Overdrive, like the Drive and then Overdrive series. And then they also made this little robot, Cosmo. 
Um, I remember the Anki. That, that was the uh, racetrack yeah. thing uh, that was a, a big hit at one of the Apple events, right? Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. they hired me about a year after uh, they kind of blew up from that. I was part of like the big hiring wave from that. Um, but yeah, it was just... Uh, it was a place that I had looked at and convinced myself I wasn't like good enough to work there, but it seemed really cool because it was like toys to life. It was like robots acting out in the physical world um, games. So like it had interesting new mechanics and like new things to consider uh, when you're like coming up with stuff for it. And um, yeah, they ended up actually having to recruit or reach out to me um, after I had like passed like even applying um, and ended up, yeah, getting a technical design role on that. So I did a lot of like UI stuff and building tools for uh, the um, game design team and everything. Um, but then they kind of pivoted away from toys and into uh, more consumer robotics right after Cosmo launched. So mm -hmm. I got laid off along with the game design team. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, um, but uh, no, I, I, I definitely, it was a really interesting kind of like aside in my career and uh yeah i don't think anki still exists i think they went under a few years later um but cosmo got picked up by something else so um i think i think that little robot still lives as a like teaching kids how to program kind of toy that's neat um yeah as a as a parent uh, i'm definitely looking forward to uh, doing robotics with uh my daughter as well i think that's going to be super super fun there's a lot of great stuff out for it right now. Oh, it's it's a fantastic market right now. I'm having a lot of fun just looking at things that I want to do in a couple of years. And in a couple of years, it will be even more fantastic, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Ben, I, I want to dive into... Um, you, you talked about your, your background in AAA studios. Um, what made you go, hey, I want to do this game. Uh, I really want to create this. Um, what was the... What was the backstory to to the game and the the inspiration for the game? Yeah, um, <clears throat> you've probably heard if you read Kotaku like at all, this concept of AAA game studios often have a lot of crunch and kind of create these you know soulless working environments. I think is roughly the way to put it. And three four three is a fine and good place to work at, but it does have elements of that, which is to say. After I shipped Halo 5, I was in a very lucky place where I kind of got to check this big box that I think a bunch of people enter the games industry to check this box of making a game that they as a teenager would have loved to play. And having checked that box and discovered that, you know, my life isn't over and I'm not ready to walk into the sea yet and I didn't really have that great a time working on Halo 5 anyhow, it... it came to this question of what do I want to do next? And the answer was, I still like video games. And I discovered that this sort of feeling of I shipped Halo 5 and, you know, it wasn't, it was an experience that I'm looking to expand on rather than just repeat for Halo 6 or whatever, was fairly common throughout the studio. So I was talking to an artist who also worked on Halo 5 alongside me named Justin. And he had the exact same feelings I had, and we basically came to the conclusion of, you know, we probably could just start a dangle indie studio. Um, we have the experience because we shipped a game, you know, we are an artist and a programmer team, which is a pretty decent team of two for creating a game, and we took off and did it. So I guess the answer was everything else seemed even worse. 
<laughs> and you were like, I'm going to spend six months making a game. God, let's not end this so. <laughs> it, it only took six months, that was all? It did not take six months. <laughs> of course it didn't. When we first started, when Justin and I said, Justin and I said we would take off from our jobs for six months and, you know, create this game. Um, at the time, it was called Rivensdale Academy Tactics Club. We changed the name from Rivensdale Academy to Wintermore. But, you know, we actually had a fairly similar idea to what shipped early on. What we discovered is you can't get all your ideas into a game in six months. It took three years and nine months to ship the game. That's a, Which that's is a, actually not that bad, in depressingly. Yeah, it's a, it, just yeah, a tad longer. For, yeah, it's 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 especially not that bad for mostly part-time people on a team. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of a lot of indie games go like seven years, you know, six to, in the six to eight range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the story is, Justin and I started out on this, you know. The core idea was we wanted to make a goofy game about kids kind of finding themselves in a boarding school in winter 1980s is where we settled on. And all of those things still very much exist in the final product. But we fairly quickly realized that um, we wanted to do a game that was focused on characters and writing. And Justin was an amazing artist who actually created the rough concepts for Alicia, Colin, and Jacob, our main characters, you know, quickly and we settled on them and we were happy but we needed someone to um create better writing and stories than we could which is how we pulled on kyla's good friend and the person who eventually convinced me to hire kyla mike the other writer and things snowballed from there going from a two-person six-month job to about a 10-person three-year nine-month job which is good because we were successful enough to be able to pull that off but my god <laughs> so um a as you were um growing the team here you, you said you ended up with uh, 10 people in total oh that's including like outsourcer contractors but mm -hmm. yeah we had six people who were kind of the core of the team who we would all talk together on slack a whole bunch and those of us who were in seattle would meet every weekend at a boba place to do uh you know Stand-ups is what they call them in the tech world. Mm -hmm. So um, I I have a question regarding one of the um, outsourcing teams that you use there. I was going through the, the credits, um, been playing through the game. I was going through the credits um, uh, yesterday, and uh, I saw that you had an, a diversity and inclusion team um, that you reached out to as well. Um, can you tell me a bit more, yeah. more about... Um, how how that went? Kylo was actually one of the people to take lead on that. So yeah, yeah. So that was sort of a kind of an interesting thing, which is um, we, you know, because of the the when when Mike and I got there, um, we were already you know given these three main characters. Here are your main characters that the story is going to be about. Uh, and, you know, the main main character is a young black teenager. And we were like, well, no one on the team is black. <laughs> and, you know, we want to make sure that we are, you know, we're like, you know, we worked really hard, like did research. I did, you know, like readings by black authors about being in growing up in boarding schools. And, you know, like we did, we, you know, like worked really hard to like think of our characters as 
three-dimensional people and really think about their backstories and what influences them and like who who they are as people and their personalities and but we also knew that we would there was a chance that there would be something big that we overlooked that we would screw up um and we were we were very conscious of that um so like for instance i had a i had seen this twitter thread that someone you know i followed had posted about like hey you know, for people doing media stuff, here's stuff that most people don't know about black women's hair and like how it, you know, how it needs to be taken care of. And I'm like, shoot, like, it seems like based on this that Alicia should probably wrap her hair at night. Like, that's a thing. But like, I don't know anything about that. I'm like, you know, I've read one Twitter thread on it. So, you know, you know, I have this general idea. Um, so we're like, we need to, we need to send to a like we need to hire a diversity reader we need someone who is like gut checking us and fact checking us who actually knows what they're talking about um and you know there's actually a lot of places that do that now as contract work um we were there's there's a weird like there's a few different ecosystems most of the time um games ones can be a little more expensive because they have to play your entire game mm -hmm. and that takes a lot of time um, but we were able to find a group that does it normally for screenwriting, and we just, like, gave them our, like, novel-sized script from the game of, like, here's all the words in the game that happens. <laughs> Here you go. Um, and they were able to, like, read it as more, like, as a novel or screenplay. Um, and we got some good feedback from that. They, you know, she was confirmed that, like, yes, like, wrapping her hair would be a, a thing that you should include, and, like, so we made sure that that got in. Um, she told us like, you know, you, you're tiptoeing around using the word black at the end, like in this, this speech towards the end of the game, you can just say black girls, that's fine. And so, you know, like little, little things like that. So, you know, she confirmed for us that we were like mostly going in the right direction, but she also provided us with, um, you know, with some important details and, and some, um, you know, some good stuff to include that I think was, you know, worthwhile for, uh, for us to have done. So I'm, I'm really glad that we ended up uh, reaching out. I encourage other indie teams to do that. I heard that was almost a compliment. That, yeah, uh, there was a conversation between the only two black women in the school that originally Kyle and Mike were afraid of trying to push too much on the we are two black people talking to each other in case you made it sound, you know, off or wrong or just feel in um, inauthentic. And the writer's take was actually all the rest of this seems to feel pretty authentic and you should push more on it, which is nice. I don't know. That was a nice take to have. I love seeing that. Um, and yeah, I, I agree, Kyle. I think it definitely more teams, uh, more indie developers and AAA studios for that matter. Yeah, I, I kind of I kind of take it as a given that indie that AAA studios should be doing this. I hope all AAA studios are doing this. But in <laughs> indie, it feels like you might have the excuse of like, well, we don't really have a budget. We don't have much we can mm -hmm. do about it. But it's, we, you know, we got it done for it wasn't like crazy expensive. Um, it was like three hundred dollars. It was fairly inexpensive. Yeah. So you oh. know, it's worth doing. Definitely, definitely. It, it, if it leads to a better experience for everyone, that's. That's just all that matters. That's that's fantastic. Um, so uh, I kind of want to dive uh, into uh, the game here a little more. So the um, development process, Ben, you you touched on this um, a little. Uh, what did the development process look like? Uh, you said you you met at a boba place for for some sprints. Um, mm -hmm. How how did it look like day to day, week to week, month to month? 
uh, throughout the game. Yeah, we actually tried to keep to fairly classic, you know, best practices, I think is the term. One nice thing about the studio being created by two people who came from, you know, a 300-person style giant AAA studio is we already had ideas about, we had seen good implementations of pipelines to get people who want to work on a game to all work on the same game together. So kind of moving into like more Silicon Valley tech style, how does this get implemented? We, you know, everyone was very encouraged to communicate everything and everything was very open on the idea that everyone should know everything that is happening in the game so that they can change what they are working on in order to better coincide with, you know, what's happening in art or what's happening in audio. We would have every other week, I would make a big PowerPoint presentation and force everyone to meet up synchronously to watch it. Uh, and you know, and it would to always talk. start with a cat joke. Oh, not just well, cat jokes. Not just cat jokes. It would always yeah. start with a bad joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this problem that I struggled with of how to um, avoid making this studio feel soulless because I thought if the studio felt soulless, we would release a soulless game and everyone would immediately forget us. But, you know, when you grow even to just five to ten people, which might sound small on paper, you find that you need to implement a lot of the pipelines and behaviors that cause studios to ultimately become soulless. So there was always a balance between those two. And one way that I tried, you know, putting some soul back in was I allowed myself to stick a dumb slide at the beginning of every update presentation. And they mostly turned out to be jokes. Sometimes they were pictures of our cats. Like... Here's my cat calculus. I'm sorry that you've been seeing my cats like go across the screen. I love it. This conversation. It was fun, and it was a good way to. I think that the game came out with soul, so I guess that part succeeded. Um, I'd also, if we're talking like production and pipeline, I feel like we have to shout out Jackie, who like of a six-person team, which is like a you know a tiny core team. One of them was a producer. And I feel like, you know, Jackie came on and kept us all organized and, like, doing the things that we said we were going to do and, like, you know, keeping mm -hmm. the deadlines and making sure that the right work was getting done at the right times. And She was also an all-star at, like, great. every conference, like, just really engaged with people and um, managing the booth and everything. Like, yeah, made it, made it very easy for us to each do, like, our independent jobs and everything. And she generally tried to be a helpful person where um, the word producer is very overloaded, I think, in tech. Like many people can have jobs called producer or program manager and do to two totally different things. But she was very good at there were tasks that would fall through the cracks because they weren't really programming and they weren't really art and they weren't really design. And Jackie was the person who was able to take them all on and just accept that, you know, this task needs to be done and I'm the person to do it, which is great. So she is now at another game studio, I think, which is very lucky for them. So um, with regards to the um, development process here, so you have, um, it is now released on PC, uh, it is released on, uh, on Switch, uh, PlayStation, and Xbox platforms. Um, what did the, uh, the porting of the other game look like? Oh yeah. 
Thankfully, there are a bunch of outsourcing studios that explicitly exist to port your PC game to other consoles. So we were we were able to pass a decent chunk of the work to one of those outsourcing studios, a group named Kitty Face, funny enough. Um, they were great, and it was mostly a programming problem at that point, which meant essentially I spent three months debugging some very nasty memory issues with one of these porting engineers as we tried figuring out, for what it's worth, Switch was the most difficult one because Switch has the lowest amount of resources because, you know, it's a handheld device as opposed to the yep. Xbox One and PS4. So we spent a lot of time figuring out how to reduce file sizes and how to deal with the fact that its memory loading architecture was different than everyone else's. It meant a lot of doing that. It was kind of a pain. Would you um, would you do it again? Yeah. Oh, my God. Switch. You know, this is a bit of a, like, bloodless business decision, but Switch sold better than Xbox and PlayStation 4. It sold almost as well as PC, which is our number one seller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in terms of the ratio of effort put in to results come out, absolutely. So I'm I'm currently playing it on my Switch. Um, nice. Just because of the, the handheld. Uh, it's just fantastic. I got, I got PC, I got PlayStation as well, but if I can play it on handheld, that's what I'm going to do. And it's a, a, I would say it's a perfect couch game as well. Um, it's super chill, um, just reading through the stories. I, I've been having a blast going through the game and just uh, exploring, talking to all the uh, NPCs and, and all the other um, characters here. Uh, it's super, super fun. Tyler, do you want to talk about Huiga? Am I pronouncing it right? Oh, Huiga? Or Higa? I don't... Oh uh, Jack, Jackie's the one who actually... Ja yeah, Heike. Uh, Jackie's the one who actually knows how to pronounce it correctly. It's a uh, Danish question mark. Uh, you mean Hugge? Yeah. Hugge. Yeah. Do you know it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, just, I just googled it. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> Hugge. Uh, um, so I'm from Sweden. Uh, we oh, have right. the same thing, <laughs> which is called uh, Fika. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so you can you could probably explain it at least as well as I could, if not better. <laughs> um, but this, yeah, the concept of like coziness and like getting to like hang out with friends in a warm and like soothing environment so we always like at, at cons and things we would say like yeah this is a game that we want you to like curl up with the way you would curl up with a good book right like drink your hot chocolate like be in a nice little blanket maybe have your switch and you know play it play it in a, it's a cozy game we want it to feel cozy i i absolutely agree there um yeah as i said i've been having a blast playing through it uh, i'm I'm a slow, slow reader, uh, but I'm I, I really enjoy the the witness. Um, I I was uh, cracking up when I was going through the library uh, and just reading the descriptions of all the uh, all the different um, uh, parts of the library, all the all the, all the I, shelves. I love the library. Mike and I hit uh, hid two separate references um, to Jorge Luis Borges in uh in the library and it's it's like the library is the best combination of our like most highbrow literary jokes with our like absolute dumbest low level <laughs> jokes <laughs> it's like the full full range of wintermore humor yeah it, it's i remember one of the best compliments oh sorry no so go ahead one of the best compliments i ever got at a convention was People who were at PAX and could do anything they wanted at PAX would go through the library because it was part of the demo scene and read every single book title and be like, ha nice. 
Like, that's great. If you'd rather read our book titles than do a, you know, whatever you want to do at PAX, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive into the game itself. Um, I'm going to uh, switch screens here and see if we can do some artwork. There we go. So um, I want to first start with um, some of the um, characters that we have of the game. But uh, uh, actually, no. Let's start with the game. Explain the game. What is it about? Who's, best for that? who's, who's most recently done the elevator pitch for it? <laughs> I particularly um, never I trusted well. myself. <laughs> okay, I'll do the elevator pitch for it. The elevator pitch for it is uh, you are um, students from a tabletop gaming club uh, in a small northeastern boarding school in 1981. Um, you're a bunch of nerds. The only place you fit in is at this club. And then one day the principal announces that the entire school and all its clubs is going to be involved in this giant snowball tournament. And the clubs have to compete with each other. And if you lose or you refuse to participate, your club is just disbanded forever because he's trying to narrow it down to find some kind of ultimate club. Um, and so the game is about trying to survive the club using the tactics that you learn from your tabletop gaming to uh, apply to these snowball fights that you have to do. And also it's about like reaching out to other clubs that have been disbanded and, you know, learning about people and making friends and, you know, saving the world with the power of friendship and imagination, like all good stories. I love it. And um, we, we see uh, some of the main characters here as well. So, uh, let's dive into the characters. Um. There we go. So here's our first character. Who is this? This is Alicia. Alicia is, uh, in a lot of ways, me as a teen girl. <laughs> She's like nerdy and she loves reading books about like empowering female protagonists. Uh, and she really likes tabletop games. She is also not me in a lot of ways because she is very like shy and avoids confrontation, um, which was <laughs> absolutely not me in high school. But she's also the player character, and she wants to be mm -hmm. a writer when she grows up. So you get to do a lot of writing scenes with her, where you write tabletop campaigns. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the more exciting features uh, that we all collaborated on. Um, we. We scaled back a lot of it um, for a lot of reasons, uh, but uh, yeah, we ended up with a bunch of stuff in the battles actually being uh, <coughs> reflecting what you choose during these kind of multiple choice creative writing, like Mad Lib sequences, yeah. uh, where you, you know, like the kind of like theming that a certain enemy would have would determine like what it would look like and what it would be named uh, a lot of the times. Or you could have a recurring villain um, or choose to just drop it off and create new villains and stuff. And I think we even have an achievement for if you keep bringing back the villain from the, uh, the uh, yeah, first campaign. It's one of the rarest ones, yeah. yeah. Um, the same recurring villain four times. I do actually think that that's probably a good thing, though, that that one's so rare because it means that people actually wanted to like try out different character designs as opposed to just like... Yeah, but you know, it's if you're if you're that kind of DM, which I actually was um, when when I was in high school, of just like I love 
like like Mace the Seymour in Final Fantasy X of just like that just obnoxious boss that you fight in so many different forms who just keeps coming back. Um, you can actually do it in this one. Um, yeah. And we we would say a lot sort of during the dev process that Alicia's superpower is her empathy. So like her, you know, mm -hmm. her whole thing is about being the one who like can reach out to other people and cares about other people and cares that they're uh, doing okay. Um, you know, which is, it's a, it's a tough stretch for her because she is one of like only two black girls at her entire school. And so she has a lot of problems with feeling isolated and sort of lonely. And, you know, this tabletop club is like the place where she can fit in and find something, you know, that, that helps her belong. And so she shares that by reaching out to others. And we wanted to kind of give the player that feeling of like, you know, reaching out and trying to think about you know, these, these other characters that you bring in and, and how that, you know, how that feels and how can we do that mechanically. And so I think it was Mike who had the idea of like, well, rather than us writing a story that's like, this, this part partly also came from, uh, we wanted to write like, okay, she's going to write these stories for these new characters and it's going to be a metaphor for the character's problems a la, you know, Persona 4. And they play through the tabletop, you know, game to address the character's problems. And Ben, I think, was like, I don't think people get subtlety and like metaphor. Like we may have to, we may have to be a little more blatant. And so Mike had this idea of like, well, what if we force the player to write the metaphor, mm. right? Like what if the way we explain the metaphor is the player picks the metaphor, right? Where Alicia says, you know, like this person is like really shy. So I need an excuse for him to reach out to people. What would be a good reason for him to reach out? And then we give you like four metaphors and you choose the one that, you know, applies to that. And then it impacts the combat side, right? Like it affects the mechanics. So you're like, I think this is the coolest villain for the person to face. And then like that becomes in the mechanics who the villain is and like what their powers are. And um, So, you know, Alicia's, Alicia's empathy was kind of the, the writing character concept around which a lot of the mechanics in the game were designed. Although... It was something that we didn't want to weigh down with a lot of like rules baggage or like extra text or explanation, but we didn't want people to feel like they were going in blind. So we did end up scaling back a lot of it to just be kind of aesthetic, uh, like when it came to the combat and focused on like the narrative. Um, so still it's a kind of things that, that yeah, survived, I think right. Um, yeah. So for Baphomet's uh, main storyline, um, that one, the like. One of yeah, I think the the final battle that she does in her yeah, campaign. Yeah, her final boss, um, and I think Duncan's final boss, right? Uh, like their mechanics, because there's like the one that's yeah. like the spider that gives birth to baby spiders or whatever. That's, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a mechanical thing. And Baphomet has a portal you can close. Yeah, and like Baphomet's, it's like base. You get to pick like the way that the portal is being held open, and that determines like, do you fight two like powerful mobs? Do you have to clear out a bunch of little ones? But that one, it was like the alternate objective fight, and uh, whatever alternate objective you had uh, was determined by the campaign. But um, yeah, I think ultimately it was probably the right call <laughs> to scale back a lot of the rule stuff, um, as like cool as the gimmick might be. But, um, you also, but you also worked really hard when we were designing side quest stuff to make sure that like we ha so we have this thing where you you gain up upgrades in the game by like reaching out to 
other people on the campus and a lot of them like members of your team. And so I know you like you did a lot of work to make sure that like the upgrades that you unlock by talking to this person are the upgrades that work better with that person in combat so that it makes you stronger like as a pair to fight with that person. Yeah, I could I could definitely like uh probably later if I'm talking about like combat and progression and everything, but I'll definitely uh elaborate a lot more on that. Um once once we're more focused on combat <laughs> that sounds great yeah there there's a lot of uh interesting stuff with the combat and specifically how it was like supporting the story um mostly because like i came on pretty late in the project uh, a lot of stuff was pretty established by that point and my main kind of role was like coming in evaluating the combat and uh you know working off playtest feedback and working with everybody else on the team to try and like really make the combat more supportive of the story and everything um as opposed you know as opposed to being really focused on it being like a hardcore like mechanical game or anything um but yeah awesome yeah we'll 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 dive into that in a bit um so let's uh um go to the next character that we have colin I feel like there's a there's a problem in a lot of video games where you can't give your main character an arc because they're the player character and you kind of always have to like them, right? Like you 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 want the player to emphasize with the character that they're controlling, um, and usually when you don't, it like makes for some weird dissonance. Like I can think of um, Catherine is a game where like you hate the player character and it's like it's, it makes for a weird experience. Um, and because of this, a lot of games do a thing where, like, the villain gets the arc instead. And I kind of think Colin fell into that a little bit. So Colin is the founder of the club. Um, he's the, like, the character that, you know, cares the most about tactics and, like, really feels, you know, has very strong opinions about the rules and how the game works and what's good and what's bad in there. Um, and he's, like, because of this, he, you know, like, our game is a lot about the idea of identity and, like, why you shouldn't build your entire identity on one single thing. And Colin's problem is he's kind of built his entire identity around this club. And so when new people start coming in, he starts to feel, like, threatened and defensive. Um, and spoilers for our game, but there's also, like, you know, and a powerful evil magical force like that that blows up these feelings and you know and makes them worse and and uh kind of um forces you to fall into these these mental traps of paranoia and defensiveness <clears throat> and isolation and so you know our arc the colin kind of gets the arc in like a, the the point of the game being like gatekeeping is bad and so like colin's you know is a well-meaning guy but he's kind of a gatekeeper and he gets sort of like worse and worse over the course of the game until there's like a final confrontation in the end where you have to be like colin remember like you are more than this club like it's not you are not all of like only tactics you are a person who has depth and who can do other things and you need to like chill out um and so you know you you rescue him from the evil influence and he kind of like you know, it occurs to him, like, shoot, I've been actually, like, being kind of a terrible person to everyone else in this club, and I really need to, like, work on myself and be better about that. It, it sounds like um, uh, this is a real-life lesson as well that a lot of people um, will 
experience, uh, I guess, because it, it, it's easy, especially as a teenager, um, to kind of tie yourself and, and tie your identity to another group of people that are like you. Um, so I definitely like that metaphor here, too. Gamergate and the alt-right slash alt-white were happening while we were creating this game. You okay, Kyla? Yeah, sorry, I just swallowed some water the wrong way. <laughs> oh, yeah. And part of the moral we wanted to teach about you are more than your club, kind of, we felt like it gained special emphasis and we were shaped by seeing Gamergate and seeing these people who were so associated with this idea of being a sort of, you know, a hardcore gamer who is rude to other people and i'm sure you're familiar with the gamergate type yep we wanted to give them a non-didactic and non um not judgmental feeling way to say here is where you are wrong and here is what you should do to right yourself i like that yeah i like and that we it was it was super interesting because the the very like original idea when mike and i first came on was this was going to be like a pretty traditional underdog sports movie type narrative where it's like the geeky nerdy club against everyone else and defeating the popular kids. And then like the more we sort of looked around at the modern landscape, we were like, actually the problem is like everyone thinks they're the underdog and they use that to justify treating everyone else like garbage because they think like, well, we're the good ones who like are persecuted and you know, like everyone else is against us. And we're like, actually that attitude is kind of what the problem is. So like that attitude is going to be our villain. And then, you know, the, the game will culminate around like beating that idea. So um, talking about underdogs, we have our third character here as well. Um, uh, Jacob. Yeah, a lot of people's favorite character, I think, based on what I've seen for streamers. Uh, Baphomet wasn't in the the demo version that I played when I was interviewing for this, but uh, Jacob was an immediate draw for me as a character. I think, like, in my interview, like, the first thing and, like, the biggest thing that I just kept being annoying about was, like, he's, like, tagging a wall early on, and uh, at least in the version that, like, I played as part of the test, like, nothing happened based on you answering what tag you should do and it it kept me up at night like i was it drove me insane uh <laughs> and like so much of uh yeah what uh ended up being like really evocative for people in wintermore and stuff and stuff that i i think we should all be very proud of like adding in to like the story was having that kind of cause and effect where like the the choices you make even if it's just an aesthetic thing or anything kind of carry on throughout and uh yeah so we ended up with not only the uh spray paint actually getting filled out with what you put but there was a whole side quest thing later on where someone vandalizes his vandalism mm -hmm. um and he gets really upset about it and that's it's just extremely cute like they try to make his like wintermore's fascist like message into uh something wholesome yeah, um, I think they scratched out the shiss, so it became Wintermore is fast growing or, or fascinating. Fascinating, yeah. So oh, that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was originally going to be like Wintermore is fast becoming uh, like a world, like a you know a leading school or something like that. But that was too long for the wall. So um, yeah, what whatever you choose with the, Jacob of depends. So it's like uh, if you say Wintermore is hell, it becomes Wintermore is hello. Um, if, if, if you do Wintermore is fascist, it becomes Wintermore is fascinating. Um, if you do uh, Wintermore is lame, it becomes Wintermore is blameless, which is maybe the most ominous. 
Yeah, especially with the whole, like, the principles trying to get you to, like, fight yeah. against your friends and, like, um, dissolve your social circle. What's the... What's the... Oh, we should... But, uh, Oops. yeah, we should probably we should talk mention... about... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, like, who Jacob is. Yeah. Which is kind of the yeah. comic relief character. Um, so, when we first created the core trio of Alicia, Colin, and Jacob, it was driven by this idea that there is a sort of um, almost a Jungian archetype of a trio, I guess, to drop a, like, $10 phrase in the conversation that you see in a bunch of Disney movies and also, like, Steven Universe, and the main character, the one that's supposed to be the player stand-in, is usually a fairly average-shaped human being, and then there is a tall, gangly character who's comic relief and who kind of is goofy, and there's just, like, a very big character who is the leader of a group. So you see this in, like, Steven Universe, and you see this in... They just did it in Ray and the Last Dragon, which I just watched over the weekend. And we created our three character archetypes based on that. So Alicia is the most average, you know, shaped character, and she's the player stand-in. Colin is the big leader character who also wound up being our villain. And Jacob is the goofy, gangly, uh, comic relief character. He yeah. is... He would be a stoner if our game talked about weed, but our game does not talk about weed. He is, you know, He's very he political. He has he has po a political ideology. No one knows exactly what it is, but he has one. His <laughs> political ideology is he's discovered the names of all the politicians that make his history teachers groan and roll their eyes, and he just shouts them out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's contrarian, um, and kind of like uh. Like he, he causes chaos, or like, and he he and he ties it to like this idea, like this vague ideology. But it's just like a justification for he just wants to act out, you know. And it's it's ultimate like he, he he's that very uh, typical kind of person who is resisting actually growing up by finding a way to justify childishness with grown up words a lot of the time. I feel, yeah, um, and sure. it, he's very relatable. To anyone who went also... through a like complaint on the internet about leftist issues too much phase while not actually doing things, yeah, <laughs> he would have a rose in his Twitter tag nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also he's also very privileged. Like we get into it in one of the side stories, but like he comes from a very wealthy family, and they like donate a lot to the school, which kind of protects him from getting kicked out. Um, and he's like aware of that this privilege, but also rebelling against it because he like recognizes that it's unfair. So he's sort of one of those like, you know, he calls himself a punk, but he kind of doesn't actually have that much punk cred. Um, like, uh, there's a great side quest about that. Yeah. Oh, I guess. Uh, just side note: this should probably be labeled with like, yeah, massive spoilers for story and stuff in the game. I, I'll, I'll make sure to yeah. to to tag this as spoiler-ish or spoiler-filled. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't I don't want to like <laughs> hold back on talking about actually like useful information if yeah just because of spoilers. So yeah, but uh, yeah, Jacob is. Uh, I feel like he's based on a sort of person that a lot of people knew in in high school, right? Like or were or were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I feel like we get we get half and half of that when I watch streamers. Like half of the people go like, "I knew that guy in high school," and half of the people go like, "I was that guy in high school." <laughs> um, but you know, he's like, he's ultimately well-meaning. He cares about his friends. He's just also kind of like, 
you know, a burnout. Like, he doesn't really care that much about doing things. Um, he just, yeah. he named, he named his, uh, his CNC character, uh, Rogues Pierre Trosti Guevara, because... I, I just love that name. <laughs> yeah, because originally he just named the character Rogi, and because he's lazy and his character was a rogue. And then retroactively, he's like, actually, let me pick these, like, political leaders from the past who've led revolutions. And we actually got called out on that, I think, on our Steam page, where someone's like, you know these are, like, like horrible people in some cases, right? And we're like, listen, Jacob didn't think very deeply about this. <laughs> like, Jacob, Jacob likes revolutions. He doesn't really care much about the meaning behind the revolutions. <laughs> and so... Uh, <laughs> You know, he's... Yeah, he... Jacob's... Uh, Jacob's part of CNC, I think. Whereas Alicia's part of CNC because she loves fantasy worlds, and Colin is because he loves both fantasy worlds and rules. Jacob is part of CNC, I think, simply because it is counterculture mm -hmm. at the time. And so we can see every character's um, fantasy version of themselves kind of reflects what they care about. So Alicia has, you know, this very dramatic fantasy costume, so does Colin, but Jacob's fantasy costume is kind of a joke referencing this, is basically just his hoodie again. Yeah, I think it's with its cape tied on. Like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. like a sheet tied on as a cape. He's really just in it to be um, counterculture in any way that he can, rather than, like, the classic reasons to be playing D&D. &D. And yeah, for any infants that are currently uh, engaging with this, um... During the 80s and, like, early 90s and everything, there was kind of a satanic panic uh, thing going on. Right. Uh, it gets, it definitely revolved a lot around, like, uh, like homophobia and queer issues as well. But, like, there was also a corner of it where it was very focused on specifically tabletop gaming, um, mainly uh, Dungeons & Dragons and Magic the Gathering, uh, were both... Uh, <laughs> Like, I even, like, I was in elementary school in, like, the mid-90s, and uh, there were still parents who, like, would not let kids interact with me, like, their children interact with me because I played Magic the Gathering, and they were worried I would, like, I was a witch that would summon demons and uh, possess them. So it was, like, a... Only if you had the right like, cards. As, yeah, oh, you know. <laughs> no, that's Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, but uh, as the, um, yeah, it's one of those, like, um, in, in that era, even though it was a pretty, like, nerdy thing, and, like, it did have that, like, kind of basement dweller association and everything, it also, um, was a kind of, like, weird counterculture and something that, like, uh, conservative America at the time was very, like, pearl-clutchy over. I think um, there was one case, and, I, like, I don't actually know the history very well, so this could be entirely apocryphal, but there was, like, one case where some kid, like, committed suicide and they found out that he had been in D&D &D, and there was like, it was blown up into this like, they think they're really their characters and if the character dies they have to kill themselves and it's a cult where they're, you know, obsessed with these demons and like dark fantasy and... it, was, it was that like Momo thing but for boomers yeah <laughs> <laughs> like the, the like weird chicken lady thing where like everyone was in a panic over a couple years back <laughs> um yeah no it, it's a yeah dungeons and dragons uh so yeah there's definitely a little bit like a few kind of references to that like making them outsiders more than it being like a nerdy thing um but yeah that might be a little lost on people who are kind of used to it being like really common like everyone's got a podcast where they're just playing D D and recording themselves you know 
um, stuff like that. Uh, there's a there's a line we have about that in the the assembly scene early on where one of the dialogue choices is uh, Alicia says like do they you know they're asking why were we brought into this assembly and one of the dialogue choices is do they think we're doing devil stuff and right. uh, Colin yeah Colin says uh, God. I've tr explained to my mom a thousand times. It's a tactical storytelling board game, not devil stuff. Yeah, it's like I'll that, it. and then all the new wave music club references are probably like the most <laughs> dated references that we make. Like we tried to make it kind of a like it's about like modern internet culture, but just not set in the internet um, kind of game. But yeah, there is definitely I think those two big things. Uh, if you don't know the context for them, might have gone over some heads. Shout out to our writer, Mike, who wrote all the New Wave music references because he is a gigantic music nerd and he wrote them all without any reference. Like, he just knew off the top of his head who the lead singers were for every band. <laughs> um, Wait, not true? I don't think that's true. I think he did do some research. He does okay. know a lot of music nerd stuff, though. Uh, uh, but if you're if you're saving anything for transcripts, make sure you, you say he had the uncanny ability to... Um, <laughs> have all those references in his head. I think uh, that sounds cooler. It's in the written transcripts now. Excellent. So uh, let's Get dive into the rest of that. <laughs> dive into the, um, uh, the the final character here that you have in your in your press kit, which is the principal. Who is this? Gary Gygax? <laughs> no, it's Gary Gygax's friend, uh, <laughs> basically. Um, it's a very deep bit of lore explaining that he knows Gary Gygax. Yeah. Did, uh, should we should we start by explaining mustache adult? Um, <laughs> so like or, originally there this this character this is one of the characters that actually changed design because like Colin, Alicia, and Jacob were built at the beginning by the artist and like Mike and I inherited them and we just used them and there was a principal character originally in that one too but he was kind of like this much bigger guy with like a big fancy mustache. And um, we, uh, he, the, the original idea was he was going to be a beatnik because the original plot of the story was that like beatniks were going to be sucking out like the life energy from the students um, because there was this whole weird, co in beatnik culture, there was this like weird concept of like, psychic energy that they had <laughs> ryan's giving me this like what the this fuck is very is new to me <laughs> yeah so yeah this is like wow. very, accumulator. yeah very google or go to i i would have yeah. probably hesitated a lot more to join this game yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that had been the right. story orgone, when I orgone energy yeah so they they were he was going to be like this ex-beatnik who is siphoning orgone energy from the uh the students um and we did we did actually go pretty far down the like researching beatnik culture <laughs> like rabbit hole and then then the story changed to like actually being about internet culture and we're like all right we got to do something different for for the principal for principal enfield so instead of being a burnt out beatnik or like a current beatnik he became this like burnt out hippie who had been like all about the like peace and love movement back in the 60s but like now it's the 80s and he's you know got a real job and he's you know like He's had kind of a rough time. He had a falling out. He was part of the, spoilers again, a part of the original group that invented the, the tabletop game CNC, but due to various reasons, they had a falling out, and so he's, like, not part of that anymore. And he's, he's 
based on a number of things, but one of them is uh, the Buddy Christ from the Dogma movie, who's like, hey! <laughs> um, so he does that pose whenever he's like, he's like trying to be like upbeat and positive about things, like, hey, this tournament's about positive vibes and togetherness and like show your school spirit. <laughs> but it's very thin, um, it's very skin deep, that part of him. That 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 specific part because I've I, I've noticed that as I uh, as I've been playing he's like yeah this is this is gonna be super fun uh, and all the the peace signs are are flowing out uh, out of him and I get this really strong uh, Danganronpa feel um, where it's like no what you're saying is terrible your gestures do not justify what you're saying um, th this is this is not good. Uh, and, and I I love that uh, kind of juxta, uh, juxtaposition um, of what he's saying and what he's doing. That conflict and that kind of weirdness and like the way that kind of unsettles people who first engage with it and just doesn't make sense uh, from a writing way. It's it's kind of like the way people get led into um, the mystery. You know, it's it's like a, it's almost like. Um, one thing I really appreciate about kind of like the way uh, this story leads into the mystery is I feel like some of the, the best kind of like mystery stories or ones where like the premise kind of slowly unravels in the background is um, they start by just introducing like, imagine like a plank of wood where someone has like created a little splinter that is just sticking out and like the player is just like running their hand over it over and over again and it's perfectly smooth normally except for this one little splinter that just like feels wrong when you're touching it and stuff and like that entices them to start digging at it and eventually like pulling that apart and finding what's underneath and everything and uh yeah so it, it's interesting seeing people kind of evolve from like why is this guy like this and like this doesn't make sense to oh um as like they learn more important things uh throughout the storyline yeah the principal has his own motivations like he he's put a, he's trying to put a happy face on some things, but like his his brain space is deep and mysterious <laughs> for most of the game. And yeah, if you've been like if you've been a student for a uh, like an underfunded kind of academic department or something, and you have someone who really genuinely cares at like the head of that department constantly having to let you down. <laughs> And that kind of desperation as he's like delivering bad news, but not wanting like the students to revolt. Like he, he definitely kind of has those vibes uh, a lot of the time. Um, like he doesn't want really necessarily want to be doing this to everybody, yeah. but he's just and trying he, to put on a happy face. He like moves the spirit week up six months in the calendar to try and have like a positive school <laughs> vibes event to cheer but everybody I, up. It accidentally just becomes very dystopian because everyone has <laughs> yeah. to like make propaganda posters about how you don't really need clubs and it's actually okay that this is happening <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah th that kind of like eeriness and juxtaposition was one of the like the few places where it kind of broke away from like the comfort that the game tries to like really drive home uh but in order to like create something that stood out and threw people kind of deeper into like the mystery yeah um, if you if if it's not clear by now mike and i are very big on absurdism mm -hmm. as sort of, you know, a, a, a sense of humor. And so basically, like, one of our most common strategies in our writing was, like, to take a semi-realistic <laughs> thing and then just, like, turn the volume all the way up on it, like, way, way too much <laughs> until it became super ridiculous. 
So speaking of close to reality, we got the uh, the three main characters also have these in-game characters. Um, do you want to talk a little about uh, about these? Sure. Um, yeah. So this is Anjaya, who is Alicia's mage character. Uh, I feel like Ryan should talk the most about the in-game characters because they're more <laughs> characterized by their mechanics than they are by uh, by their dialogue for the most part. Sounds good. Yeah, no, uh, the in-game characters were a really interesting challenge as a uh, combat designer um, because it wasn't just, you know, I need to check off boxes for certain roles or represent certain mechanics. Uh, the characters had to not only, you know, fill those roles and fit together as a team, which there ends up being seven total characters, um, but you can run three at a time. Uh, the uh, but yeah, in addition to just filling the roles that a normal party of characters normally has to, they also have to each kind of feel like that character's personality and fit into um, you know the character that's represented in the story. Uh, so it doesn't feel weird that like they really change up their personality when they go into the CNC, especially since like so much of the story revolves around. Um, Alicia is trying to like meet people where they are and create characters in the story that make them feel comfortable joining CNC, which is actually you know a source of a big conflict with her and Colin because he's the big rules lawyer. Um, and there's actually there's a few lines of dialogue that Colin has that are literally just lifted from like me complaining about shit in chat. Um, <laughs> and uh, oh wait, sorry, uh, I I did a swear. That's <laughs> perfectly fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, bad habit from working in salty workplaces. Uh, but the, um, yeah, so, uh, like, I think one of my favorite ones, uh, bits of dialogue was, uh, like, the last character that you recruit, um, he, like, is a member of the, uh, basically the furry club, and uh, his character is a specific kind of fruit bat and a very specific kind uh according to the writers uh, so i initially when i was pitched this character and had to come up with someone that like matched that personality uh i i was like oh cool yeah i guess like you know there's a few options we have we could do like a like kind of vampiric like tank uh but has to be high aggression sort of character with like blood draining attacks and they're like oh no this is a fruit bat only only eats fruit yeah well i thought it was i thought it was funny because you were like well like you know it makes sense to do like vampirism or like echo because we're trying to come yeah. up with a flying character and i we were like well we don't want to do bird so what about bat and you you kept like coming up with cool bat mechanics and i'm like wouldn't Sonic attacks, like an yeah. I had a whole echolocation kind of like mark your like, target system. Wouldn't it be funnier if we picked a bat that like can't do any traditional bat things? None <laughs> of the normal game design tropes for bats, like so no Sonic attack, and like uh, in in game they actually have this back and forth when they're trying to come up with this character, um, and then like so they gave me the the specific name. Oh yeah, so I mentioned echolocation, and the bat is not blind, sees perfectly fine. Um, and then <laughs> there was, uh, so I, I basically, like, looked up, like, the bat, like, breed on Wikipedia, and, like, the main thing it was known for was it eating fruit and then shitting out the seeds, uh, for it pollination. It fertilizes the soil with its poop. Um, and there's a whole thing of, like, uh, their, like, main socialization was oral sex, which, like, obviously not a good fit <laughs> for this game, and I didn't even want to like attempt to make combat mechanics around that 
Um, so, oh yeah, and then sometimes they bite people and give them the plague. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was a kind of like plague bite uh, melee mechanic. Ended up being, since it was the seventh character, I kind of had three characters that focused on physical damage, three on magical damage. And then this was kind of the character that could fit into all of your existing kits because you had so few battles to like work with them. I wanted to make that character basically a viable option regardless of what you were doing at that point. Um, so it's a very flexible character. Ended up being kind of a summoner druid character with uh, high mobility. Um, but yeah, there's a full-on dialogue back and forth where uh, Duncan is excitedly explaining bat facts right, uh, but, to but Colin, about, who is upset. Uh, but yeah, talk about um, Anjaya and yeah. how Anjaya's mechanics work. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Anjaya is <laughs> rad. Um, Anjaya is uh, she. She's kind of like you know. Being the main protagonist character, I wanted her to have the, like the flashiest kind of marquee mechanic, um, which uh, in this game is uh, chain lightning effects. Um, there's a bunch of mechanics that revolve around chaining, and the biggest thing for Anjaya is she's very like she's a very supportive kind of leader. Um, she's the kind of manager that would make sure that uh, everyone on her team shines uh, way more than trying to like be domineering over them or be the person that like gets the spotlight. Um, so her, her main me mechanic is she's kind of like the glass cannon ranged, uh, AOE character or area of effect attack character. Um, but she needs, um, other characters to kind of support her and line up attacks to really shine the most. Um, and, uh, I, I felt that was like, she also is, uh, with her upgrades, she's the one that gets a lot of abilities that give you additional tactics points or uh, give buffs to other characters. So she, she's very good at encouraging other players um, and, uh, and the like. Um, oh, officially, she's a mage. Like, the D&D 1E classes were mage, warrior, and rogue. So the three main characters are a mage, a warrior, and a rogue. Yeah, and... Uh, we kind of fudged Colin's class. He's, like, some kind of weird hybrid between a paladin and a barbarian, but... Uh, you know. That's, yeah. That's warrior. It, it's it's slightly different in CNC. CNC is like yeah. meaner, mirror universe D and D. So yeah, there's like the magical girl. There's there's the punchy boy, and then there's the the tricksy one. Mm -hmm. Um, as like the the generic archetypes, and then the other characters were kind of elaborations on each of the previous characters. Uh, yeah, but. and I I gotta say, chain lightning is my favorite mechanic to use in the game. Like, every time I had to do, like, playthrough stuff, it's all about, like, let's see how much of the battlefield we can connect into one single contiguous chain so I can get everybody at once with chain lightning. <laughs> it's I, just kind of what feels good to use. I, I was having a lot of fun with that mechanic as well, just to um, use the grappling hook. So early on in the game when you get the grappling hook and just started, uh, started using that and making sure that I pushed and, and pulled people into small piles mm -hmm. so I could use the, the chain uh, mechanic there, the chain lightning mechanic. It's just, it just feels so good just to nuke uh, a ton of enemies at the same time. My original background, like being heavily in like designing mechanics for puzzle games and like different puzzles meant that because this game was fully deterministic, uh, and we, we didn't have any randomness and everything. Uh, we, um, a lot of the battles were just naturally going to have a puzzle-like solution and everything. And I, I wanted one of our core and really like obvious mechanics to feel like this kind of emergent puzzle uh, that you got to play around with depending on like the team comp that you set up. Like 
are you using the psychomancer class that comes along later that actually creates mist that conducts the electricity and connects you know groups of enemies or like you using like the grappling hook or the shove reposition stuff um yeah rogi's you know whole personality he really likes throwing wrenches in other people's plans disrupting things and everything so i i went with a heavy like reposition focus uh for his kit um and uh i believe uh chaining came out of like a conversation at gdc with um and into the breach dev where like the the main like really great advice and takeaway i got from that was um having having kind of like a flashy and fun mechanic that gives people like goals to work towards like that are apart from just grind your opponent's health to nothing um is something that feels very very good uh and i was definitely like chaining use was always in the game and everything but it was very sparingly used it was like i was very afraid of it <laughs> because of how powerful it seems and i was afraid of making something seem too good and there's just a there's definitely a point where it's just like but it's fun <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and like ultimately like uh you know with like certain enemy types and a few more things that we added into the game like the magical versus uh, physical damage and everything made chaining a lot more fair uh and a lot of the other stuff a lot more viable but yeah it ended up being pretty okay that you know there's a very obvious and loud kind of keyword mechanic that makes people feel good about building around um especially since this was meant as like a kind of introduction to the genre I really wanted uh, players to kind of understood or understand what is really fun for it for me <laughs> with with this kind of genre, but on a very like boiled down and very kind of obvious level. Um, but yeah, I want to dive yeah, into um, the uh, the other two um, uh, focused characters here as well, here as well. So this is uh, Colin's persona. Um. Yeah, so uh, he's he's kind of like big tank character. He has the best stats uh, to reflect his min-maxi rules lawyer nature. And uh, because he was kind of a villain, uh, I I kind of let Eowald, Eodwald, um His name is Yodwald because it's very fantasy-ish. It's something yeah. Tolkien would have been proud of. Yeah, it's old, it's um, old English-y. <laughs> I let him kind of eat being the like, boring but like very uh easy to use kind of like a uh, supportive tank character um it you know he's probably the hardest to lose fights with but uh probably one of the worst for like you know he has the lowest ceiling as far as like what he can pull off and everything and like yeah overall mechanically he kind of ended up not being super popular uh from feedback i got but like I was pretty okay with that because like he also like story-wise a lot of people just didn't like using him because they thought he was a jerk <laughs> and uh if, if there was in he, he does fill a very important role like he has a lot of really great supportive abilities mm -hmm. that are heavily designed around um if a player is struggling with certain concepts that are difficult in our core system like the uh the way enemies target other people if you pay close attention to that you can just through positioning completely avoid getting hit in most battles um, if you're smart about your positioning or you know take out the right enemy and then create the safe spot um Aildwald, uh kind of makes up for if you don't know how to do that well or you find yourself cornered and everything by being able to taunt enemies 
or to hit them with a crowd control effect that reduces the damage they deal. Um, so, um, yeah, so he, he kind of, uh, he, his main role was kind of being kind of like the rock, uh, the, the high stats character, um, and the one, the one that wins battles basically no matter what, uh, just to like kind of reflect uh, who he would be as a C&C player. He also, um, like, as a character, he thinks about himself as, like, the leader who takes care of the rest of the club and protects them and, like, yeah. you know, stands up to bullies and doesn't, you know, get get rattled by them and stuff. So that's kind of reflected in, you know, he's this stoic paladin character that can taunt damage away from the rest of the party and take it on himself and, you know, sort of martyr himself. Yeah, he, um, he can take the hit. Fits into his arc. <laughs> And yeah, he's uh he also is one of the only characters that just starts with like flat physical armor. Mm -hmm. Um so like the uh physical attacks hitting him actually do, you know, end up being less efficient than if they were hitting any other player, in addition to him just being meatier um health wise. So our um yeah. our final uh or but our third character here, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. Um, or Rogue. Rogue. What, what's his full name again? Rogues Pierre Trotsky Guevara. I love it. Um, yeah, Rogi, or as one uh, article about Wintermore erroneously put it, it's pronounced Rogue Guy, which <laughs> is not pronounced Rogue Guy. <laughs> but uh... you gotta love when people speak on like, like with authority about your game and are just like very wrong. <laughs> Um, yeah, Rogi, you can tell from Rogi's attire that, like, he's not, Jacob doesn't take the game, like, super seriously. He has a uh, bandana, he has a little, um, what do you call it? Cape? Cape? Yep, <laughs> cape-ish. Uh, and, and, yeah, his outfit is, is done. Yeah, um... But, like, mechanically, uh, I already mentioned, you know, he really likes disrupting plans, like, mixing things up and everything. And then also kind of, as a CNC player, uh, focused him a bit on, like, how I am when I'm a player and not a DM, which is, you'd think I'd have more empathy for DMs, um, because that's, like, that was, like, the first role I kind of did when I was, like, playing it in high school. But um, now, as a player, I'm, like, a huge troll i i'm a, just a problem i'm i'm usually like i pick my abilities based on what's going to create weird emergent situations and everything so he's the kind of character who would demand a grappling hook and then find all sorts of annoying ways to use it that make like the dm like have to like rub their temples and be like no yeah that works yeah and, and like, colin, like the... colin puts up with it because he's known jacob for like years and years and years but he's not like thrilled with it <laughs> And uh, kind of how that's reflected in gameplay is he has a lot of stuff where he 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 lines up like really perfect moments with his reposition mechanics and everything. And he has a lot of he's definitely got some of the most flexible abilities um, because all of his reposition mechanics can also target friendlies without dealing damage to them. Um, so, you know, he has the ability to pull and jai out of danger or even uh, across little rivers, which forces enemies to pass across like large areas. Um, and uh, yeah, so making people feel clever and also like they're kind of getting one over on the game and potentially even like cheesing the game uh, was actually part of Rogi's character because that's 
how he would actually play, you know, CNC as a person. Yeah. Also, um, Jacob loves like action movies. He's very into like, you know, like big, showy, dramatic, flashy kind of action. And so this is, you know, that character sort of reflects that showiness in uh he just wants the thing that will make his like that will seem cool in the moment. I think there's an upgrade that you can get him uh for Christmas that's like um background music that like plays when he makes an entrance and That's fantastic. Um, and one of the other characters is like, you know it's maybe not the best idea for the rogue to have like showy background music when they enter a room. <laughs> Jacob's like, I'll make it work, it's fine. Zero sneak. And people were so upset, like especially hardcore tactics players at like cons were very, very upset that he did not deal additional damage from attacking enemies from behind due to face. That was an uh, early mechanic, actually, the attack from behind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we discovered that. Like... Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a... Uh... <laughs> That was one of the major, like, kind of genre conventions because, you know, like, facing direction and is, like, an element of positioning that's very common in, uh, you know, turn-based tactics games. Uh, you know, Final Fantasy Tactics, like, uh, just, uh, like, a lot of games care if someone is facing the other way for, like, chance to hit or, like, chance to crit, getting bonuses and everything, and especially the rogue character. <laughs> um, but uh, he ended up kind of, like, focusing more on, like, rogues being flexible jack-of-all-trades kind of characters and very, like, having a lot of situational tools for specific situations uh, that I think, honestly, is a lot more accurate to what D&D &D or CNC rogues would do um, than, like, uh, like, just sneak and sneak attack, you know? Apart from, like, that is a way they deal damage and everything. But, you know, it's like... Uh, it was something that we did intentionally drop, knowing it would be controversial, uh, because it didn't really contribute to the actual enjoyment of the genre, and it adds a lot of rules baggage, which would be good if we were trying to create a much longer game that needed more or content. More hardcore and, game. Yeah, or a more hardcore game. But like for this game, it didn't need the extra upgrades. It didn't need the nuance. It already had plenty of mechanics and. Uh, it was just like a lot of weird invisible rules and that was also another big thing we wanted to avoid uh ben had an immediate like from the get-go like you should be able to look at the board and uh like have an idea of what is going on uh kind of rule um i was about to mention the breach actually into the breach has an amazing thing which is you can post a screenshot of into the breach on your forums and be like help how do i solve this and no information is needed about the screenshot the screenshot contains everything you need to know and we were aiming for that with the game. And, you know, I really liked the idea of a game being that simple. I think Into the Breach is an amazingly designed game because of its simplicity. And I felt like facing was just, it added too much complexity for its worth. And so even though we had facing implemented in the game and showed it off at some early demo builds, yeah, we just axed the whole system. I was uh, reading through some of the documents that you sent over uh, prior to the uh, conversation here. And, um, yeah, I... Just as you noted there, uh, simplicity was key. Um, and um, is that because of the demographic that you wanted to target for this? Uh, so it would be an easy an easy tactics game to get into for, for new players? Or what was the, um, um, what was the motivation for, for the easiness instead of the, the grindiness? I'd hesitate on the word easy. Um, 
easy to understand, easy. not easy to master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you try uh, Yin's mastery challenge and get back to me on easy. Uh, I, I streamed myself doing that, and I wiped on that five times because I refused to use the, like, build that I cheesed the fight with, and I then discovered, like, oh, no, I made this very hard. Um, it's the hardest, like, it's the hardest optional battle in the game, so whatever, but... <laughs> No, I, I do think yeah. a lot of people. Oh, I do think a lot of people when they hear the phrase tactics RPG, the thing that comes immediately to mind is like Final Fantasy tactics and these sort of very dense rule books that require discussing on game FAQs to understand like even what the possibility space is. And I was trying to move away from that in part because I think like simpler is more aesthetically pleasing. And I look at a game like Into the Breach and I just see a very aesthetically pleasing game that would give me pleasure to um, mimic. But also, we knew fairly early on that we were targeting kind of the joke phrase to describe them internally was Tumblr teens, 13-year-olds um, who are very interested in, like, video games and nerd stuff, and also social justice and maybe um, hanging out, on, you know, hanging out on Tumblr. I'm sure you're familiar with this, like, concept. Co cozy cottagecore stuff on Tumblr and, and uh, is, it, it's a, is it soft punk or kind punk? That was the term for that was circulating Tumblr for a while of like, no, it's actually like really badass to like be supportive of your friends and like have a positive uh, attitude. To to use more clinical and less potentially condescending terms, it was uh, the visual novel crowd and people that were getting into those games and kind of propping up that whole scene. Um, I want to be clear, by the way, that I I am. Main. I am one yeah. of those Tumblr teens, so I say this only with love. Yeah, but, but it was it was mostly yeah. At least like my impression was, uh, the visual novel crowd was the main focus for this game, and uh, we wanted to kind of uh, make a game that was very welcoming to them and that kind of showed them what was fun about you know games that go a bit deeper with like combat and mechanics and everything, um, and like those RPGs, um, so they could potentially. You know, it, it was kind of like an yeah, like a gateway uh, game um, to to like get people used to some of these mechanics or where the joy can be found. Because I feel sometimes, especially with all the rules and like upfront, you know, barriers to entry, uh, it can be difficult to see what's even enjoyable or to find the fun in those games. And, you know, we were also um, making a game about you know how to not alienate people from your hobby. Right, like yeah. So we didn't want to want the gameplay to like alienate people from yeah, the, the story. Really, we wanted to make a game where, like, if you came for the story because you love visual novels and you want to be empathetic and connect with these characters, the the game mechanics shouldn't stop you from achieving that goal. Right? It shouldn't be just like this is really hard, and if you can't do it, too bad. You're not good enough to play the game. Right? Like that's that's a very harsh thing. And so we even implemented a system whereby, like, if you lose a fight twice, there's a no-fail mode. And there's, like, no punishment for choosing it. You can just say, I want to put on a mode where my characters can't die so I can just continue with the story. Uh, I, I will note that uh, as the combat designer internally, I was very salty about this at first and was very wrong. <laughs> just ultimately, like, I, I will, like, there very consistently, like, have been proven wrong. Because it turns out you just don't use it. <laughs> yeah. If, like, you want to, like... Yeah, the like, people yeah. Who, really, who really care about the mechanics and want to do it don't turn on no-fail. Yeah. The people who are like, uh, this is stressing me out too much, I just want to see what comes next, 
turn on Nokeville, and it's and everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah, and like even the people that I like saw playing it with like no fail and everything and even like really cranked up like player health and like really cranked down enemy health so they're killing everything in one hit and stuff like that like they were still really enjoying specific combat mechanics which is all i really cared about is that like people would find their themes and like enjoy how they played off each other um so it, it was definitely like yeah oh yep it might be worth mentioning Undertale too, as like for the audience, we were targeting the exact same audience as Undertale. We were trying to do kind of, you know, what Undertale did, except, I mean, I don't think people consider Undertale a shmup, although Undertale was like a shmup also, but we were trying to take a lot of the Undertale concepts and apply them to tactics yeah. RPGs, although which I, I think say, many of us just love. I do know people who have been alienated by Undertale because it was too hard, right? Who went mm -hmm. like, like, I am like an entire beginner to this genre and uh, the storytelling is really cool and cute but i can't do this mechanic and i can't finish the game and like that's so sad because it's such a wonderful game it's like no we play play the we want you to see the whole story the point <laughs> is for you to see the whole story there we did have a requirement no real-time behaviors everything can be done with infinite waiting in order to like make it easier for those folks and yeah there's definitely like an that. element of just like yeah, kind of like walking, so hopefully other games can run. You know, we're like, yeah, you know, like bringing bringing people in and being willing to cut out like a lot of mechanical cruft and everything. Um, specifically, so like once someone has played Wintermore, maybe they'll be more willing to you know engage a bit more with like other games that yeah. they might have been intimidated by before. Yeah, so it's like let's let's you know pick out what are the most fun core things about tactics right it's like finding a build that you feel like that feels good and fun and and like powerful to use and it's feeling clever because you did some movements that like messed with the enemy ai and like got you an extra turn that you weren't supposed to have and you know like these these little pieces and like let's make the game just about those like good feeling things and not about weapon triangles and facing and like permadeath on characters and like all the other stuff that comes like with the hardcore end of the genre and you know there's still like elements of like strategy and especially teamwork since so much of the game is about characters connecting so like oh like almost every status effect is designed uh not to benefit whoever uses it but to benefit another character so like the order in which you do things so there starts to be you know the options to do a lot more complex stuff and get those like fiddlier like little interactions and everything but at the bare minimum we wanted the uh floor and the barriers to entry to be as low as possible um while while still giving some room for like an interesting ceiling um with stuff like chaining or like vulnerability and the armor effects so i'm flipping through uh that some of the one of our great yeah, I was gonna say that's that's my favorite thing to watch stream <laughs> is when they realize that they have to draw they they are being called upon to draw a picture of a horse. That's hands down the best reaction that we get to any moment in the game where people go, Wait, I have to draw this? And then they proceed and so many people have made so many like wonderful little weird drawings in our little drawing mini game. I love it so much. And yeah, as far as like just little bits of gameplay and story that like paid off really really well um this is another one similar to like the graffiti moment where like the player does something and it's like a throwaway thing early on and they don't think they're ever going to see it again and then it keeps coming up like various like 
like there's a couple moments where the different drawings that you did actually get used in the like story and like main world and everything. Um, yeah, I, I will I will give credit gag. to um to our artist Leo for pretty much everything in this screenshot, like the the weird funky sticker designs, the strange names on the markers, which are called uh, Thick Boy and Marky Chan, um, and uh, the the eraser is Mr. Mistake. And I think all of those are amazing <laughs> jokes, and Leo, I, th I believe, came up with all of those. So that's awesome. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm showing some of the uh, screenshots that we have here from the game, and um, uh, I gotta say, I I really uh, like this part here when you finish um, a fight, and uh, you can see I, I I do enjoy the the par functionality here, uh, and that you can actually um, you can be a lot better than than par and then you are what is it uh, super stupendous something i can't remember uh, what the staggeringly the super savvy there we go there we triple go triple s yeah yeah so uh, japanese letter grading <laughs> that is so we smart. took it from devil may cry pretty directly <laughs> i love it yeah well, i think we changed the names of the actual words that they use but yeah um yeah, and this is another example of that like low floor, <laughs> high ceiling mentality, right? Where it's like, you just have to win the fight to win the fight, right? Like you just have to, usually the goal is like defeat all the enemies. And like, that's usually not crazy hard, but if you want to get the triple S rank, you got to think about the moves you're doing and like which characters you're using. And yeah, that gets harder and harder. This system actually is very, very heavily driven by a like score systems uh from bubble shooters actually <laughs> which were like bubble shooters were like pretty simple uh like fairly like easy or like random number generated focus puzzles uh like clear but there was a lot of weird subtle mechanics where you could optimize score uh and that was kind of where we put in like high level play uh it never really like those systems never really got used in a way that was very satisfying to me when I was working for like bigger companies, everything. So uh, with this one, um, the metal system was very much set to be like, if you figure out this combat and you play it optimally and you actually like treat it, you know, as a hardcore tactics game, uh, because that's like what you get out of these games, then there is a space where you'll be graded based on that. And those medals also unlock a lot of the abilities that I wouldn't really want to introduce to players who are uncomfortable with the genre, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. will kind of satisfy a lot of players who are like, oh, I wanted more from this game. Uh, one big example is most of the kind of consumable mechanics, which is I have, uh, there's a whole set of power word abilities that happen, you can use once per battle, they give a buff for a few turns and everything. And those are very advanced mechanics compared to many of the other base mechanics that you run into while playing through the game normally but if you're playing very well you'll get access to the challenge battles sooner uh because those are unlocked by getting a certain number of medals and then those challenge battles tend to unlock stuff that is uh harder to use but more focused on the ceiling as opposed to the floor for the game and yeah. uh, i think that was a very good kind of compromise with like creating a space for people who love the story and everything, but they do, they've played a lot of Taxis games before and they do kind of need a bit more meat um, it, with their character customization late on. Yeah, we had this ethos um, that we tried to work in when we were thinking about our audience, right? Which is like, some people will be coming to this for the tactics, for the gameplay, and some people will be coming to this for the story. 
and you sh as a player you should be allowed to choose why you you know what you like about the game so if you are good at the tactics and you enjoy doing the tactics you are rewarded with more tactics with harder battles with you know like more complex mechanics if what you like is the story and you want to go around and talk to people you are rewarded with more people to talk to and easier combat right like you get abilities and, and upgrades that like make it easier for you to just get through the fights um and so it's like you know the people who like the story can focus on like getting through the story and reading the story and the people who like the tactics can focus on the tactics and people who want to do everything can do everything and the the specifically the, uh the theming for the obstacle i mean for the uh upgrades uh that you would get from story oriented stuff was uh, as kali mentioned earlier uh really focused on like those two characters working together in a very obvious way like it would be very much like this makes you better with this specific character and um you just connected with yeah exactly and then um the uh challenge battle upgrades and stuff like that those tended to be a bit more just like mechanical and dry and kind of like uh fantasy themed upgrades and stuff because like those were meant for the people who were looking at the rules text and getting excited by that uh whereas you know the story oriented stuff had little jokes in the flavor text and a lot of like the theming was based on the character that you got it from uh so the the i guess kind of the place where the two bled into each other was not only did we want to like kind of reward people with more of what they like about the game but we also kind of wanted the other half of the game not to get in the way but kind of make a case for itself you know like kind of uh, you know, with the upgrades you'd get through the side quests and stuff like that, kind of entice game like combat-oriented players to uh, engage with the story more rather than just rushing through stuff. And uh, with a lot of the combat upgrades, you know, kind of entice story-oriented players to uh, enjoy the combos and stuff like that. Can I can I tell a, a short tangential story? <laughs> Go for it. About the writing. <clears throat> um. So Ryan, you mentioned the the flavor text on the um, on the the attacks. I was just thinking like yesterday about the fact that like man, we wrote those in like the worst possible. Uh, like Mike and I wrote a lot of the attack flavor stuff, or, or like finished up a lot of the attack flavor text when we were in an airport on the way to reboot Red, and like so it was in Canada. And our, our, we were going to be landing in Canada at, like, 1 a.m. and then still had to take, like, a multi-hour, like, bus ride to the place we were staying um, for this conference. And so it was, like, 9 or 10 p.m. We were sitting in the airport, and I had a horrible head cold. So if some of the jokes in the flavor text for, like, the attacks and when upgrades seem a little weird, we were a little loopy when we wrote some of that. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, so I'm uh, looking through some of the screenshots here. So um, I really like this, uh, this one as it kind of shows how, um, again, going back to um, planning and uh, the way that you can plan your attacks and making sure that you uh, have a lot of fun with the tactics element as well. Um, uh, utilizing all the, all the different uh, skills that your characters have. Uh, I... Uh, I've been playing a few other tactics games. I'm not a tactics gamer, uh, but this one, as I said before, it was easy to understand, which I really enjoyed. Uh, but again, not easy to master uh, as I 
am progressing through the story and I realize that there are a lot of nuances here that I don't know about yet. Um, so it's going to be super fun to continue to progress through the story here. So I would like to um, move on a bit and talk about the reception of the game um, when it comes to your attendance o um, around the world, uh, uh, around the globe, at conferences, um, and um, uh, what the reception was there, and, and then talk a bit about your uh, the reception when the game launched. But let's uh, let's start with conferences. What did people say? more global than Canada? I think we mostly just stayed in the U.S. Canada is the farthest we got, which is still pretty decent. Hey, oh, hey, you, you went international. Yeah, we were, we were at the <laughs> Reboot Red conference that was, uh, that was held in... What is the name of that town? Oh, it was at a very fancy hotel. Banff. Like Banff or Banff. Banff, yes, in the town of Banff, Canada, <laughs> in the fanciest hotel I have ever been in in my life. Very cool. Showing two cons is difficult because, especially we were a cozy game, and cozy is a great feeling that everyone wants to feel, but it's not a feeling that is easy to import into um, a PAX like somewhere where there's you know 200 different booths all vying for your attention and blaring music and techno is in the background. So although we actually didn't take it to PAX, our very first demo, as I recall, had the characters talking to you, breaking the fourth wall and saying, look, this is a demo. Are you more interested in combat or story? And then we teleported you to like a 15-minute um, you know, take of whichever one you selected, which is actually a great idea, I thought, and a good way to solve that. Uh, by the time we did PAX, we realized that if we give people a half-hour demo, our game was actually sticky enough that they would play for the full half-hour, so we gave them both of it. We gave them a little taste of both, and they got to play the game for longer. Yeah, it's it's tough to demo narrative games as well in a con setting because like, you know, the we try and get to the point of the story as quickly as possible, but like it's still like kind of pushing 30 to maybe 45 minutes depending on how you play to really get to the point where we've established what's going on. So I think our original demo was like chat or not our original demo, but like the demo we ended up doing at a lot of packs was like from the beginning of the first chapter to the moment you meet your first snowball tournament opponents and you like talk to the the young the young monarchists is is the first club um and that's that's a chunk of time and we were lucky that like most people who played the demo like wanted to play through the whole thing and would play through to the end which was like you know is a great compliment on the game but it also means you don't get a ton of throughput at a convention, right? You, you, there aren't that many people who can play because one playthrough takes a long time. Um, so we were very helped by having, like, you know, high screens that people could stand in the back and, like, watch the gameplay happen. Or I think it didn't, at, like, PAX East you guys went to uh, when uh, you had the Versus Evil booth, right? You had a lot more s stations than we than our, like, single computer or two computers or whatever it was at... Uh, it was single, yeah, single computer and TV at, at the Indie Mega booth. And we had people sit in bean bags super low to the ground so that people could see what was happening above their heads. Oh, that's cool. It, yeah, it very much helped us a lot um, that we had like a very visual, like the art style was just incredible for this game. So we had a very visually appealing game. Um, and that that definitely got a lot of people very interested, even if they didn't have time to like play, you know, the story to kind of get a feel for like the writer's voice or 
like our demo you know rpgs you want to slow roll mechanics and everything so like the demo is just teaching you the very basics uh which doesn't really get into what's actually like special or any nuance or anything um and you, so. you kind of, i think you have to play the first three chapters of the game to actually have seen all the mechanics in the game at least once pretty much not including the like fancy boss fight stuff at the very end it turns out pretty games demo very very well at cons <laughs> even yeah. even if they're a genre that normally would suffer in that environment yeah. also um, we got an unexpected boon um from covid at the last minute um i think it was because of COVID. maybe it wasn't because of covid but it was because of something maybe it was just random happenstance but you guys demoed at pax east and we have a publisher there and the publisher was going to show our game on like two screens at their booth because they have like six games that they're showing and then like one of the biggest games that was like supposed to come from the uk sort of pulled out at the last minute like they couldn't make it so we got all their booth space so we had oh, like yeah, it was right before everything shut or something down. like that yeah and it was right before everything shut down due to covid so that was great yeah yeah we were you know part of our publishers publishers have a difficult job and we were part of their release slot and you know they released three games a year and we were one of the games that year who therefore got to show at pax and the other two games that were going to release both didn't have their demo ready in time they just had production problems oh. and so the publisher's question became should we just cancel our entire pax presence or should we give it all to wintermore tactics club and our response was give it all to us right now and it <laughs> kind of the uh, flip side of that coin though is like basically like when we launched and when we when we were on new platforms and everything every conference was gone and that is you know there's so much press that is like mm -hmm. very difficult to reach out to so much marketing opportunities like it you know conferences aren't everything but it is usually a pretty good space to like get your finished game in front of the kind of people that would uh advocate for it uh so and what like yeah, I, I have a hard time saying we got a boon from the play. Yeah, I guess, yeah no, I, I, mis, I misremembered the timeline. That that just yeah. happened randomly because of the other games that we got a big booth. But we did manage to slide in, like, PAX East was, like, one of the last big conventions that happened before everything shut down for COVID. So we were also supposed to do, like, Emerald City Comic Con, I think, that year, um, and, like, a few other things, and, like, whoops by the way, plague. And then it's like, well, you know, we're releasing in May. We're not going to just like, you know, we're, our team can't really afford to just, you know, back up our release date for a year or more. So we just released in May and just did it digitally. So can you, can you tell me a bit more about how that went? Uh, the, the launch and everything, it was in the middle of COVID. Everyone was um, trying to get their hands on uh, game consoles. The Switch was sold out everywhere. Um, and you, you launch a game uh, right in the middle of this. Uh, what, what was the uh, reception like? Critically pretty good. I remember, yeah, the best thing we had was great critical reception. There's a funny, I think this game kind of fell into being a common trope of, like, critically very well-received, but not that many people purchase it. Um, when I hear the description of a game that's critically well-received, but not many people purchase it, I think of something like Bat Dragon Cancer, something of, like, you know, takes on difficult tasks and is very artistic, but a pain in the butt to play, I guess. Um, or Cart Life also did that. And I'm surprised that we fell into that category because I see us as being a very goofy thing that aims at being fun more than being um, 
you know, capital A artistic. But the yeah, fact I, is, oh, sorry. I think the best press we got was from the Buried Treasure article um, that, uh, is it, he's one John of John Walker. Former, yeah, I was going to say one of the former Kotaku writers, is that right? Rock, uh, paper, or, shotgun. Oh, rock paper shotgun. Oh, that's right. Go. Former rock paper <laughs> shotgun person. Um, yeah, runs a runs a blog called Buried Treasure where like he just writes up like obscure indie games and gave us like a really glowing write up saying like I would be really surprised if this doesn't catch on because it's like very much in the zeitgeist right now. It was such a nice like sweet article and we absolutely didn't catch on. <laughs> um, <laughs> and but we did because of that article we also made he was uh, responsible for compiling a list for Kotaku at the end of the year that was mm. the top games of 2020 that you've never heard of. And he put us on that list. Um, so, you know, and that also gave us like a little mini press boost uh, and was a really nice thing. And it's nice to think like we made somebody's, you know, top games of 2020 list. We weren't like. We made a few folks's. Yeah. We did. Yeah, we did get a few. Yeah. Like, uh, I think we got um, like a best uh, tactics RPG from like a one online magazine and some, or something like that. But that is pretty good really accolades. Difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult to figure out what makes something a commercial success. Because I think everyone dreams of releasing the next Minecraft and, you know, being able to throw $10 million towards your next game when, you're, when your first game was an indie labor of love. And it is very, very difficult when looking at a game that is not yet released to identify whether or not it will be a commercial success. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's tough because I feel like m most people who play our game really enjoy the game and are sort of many are sort of surprised at how much they enjoy the game based on the feedback we get but it just it didn't spread enough you know we just didn't have enough reach um to to get heard of it <laughs> yeah there you go exactly uh that looks like septavia there that would imply you're pretty far in the uh in the that, game. that is correct that is correct yeah it's it, it, i've been having a blast playing this and so you know i think Obviously, we, we wish it had sold really well uh, and made us a lot of money and funded our, our next game. But I am I'm glad that people like for, for me personally, who like has another job and doesn't have to have a, a financial stake in like this. This determines whether I eat or not. Um, I'm more proud to have made a game. I'm happier to have made a game I'm proud of. Right. That I feel like. Mm -hmm said something and meant something and I feel like we we made a good game and I feel good about the thing we released into the world. Like to me that's much more important. And I guess that's, you know, that's the indie life, right? Is <laughs> that's the thing that you prioritize that instead of bubble shooters and you Hey now. I made good Snoopy Pop was a work of art. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I was gonna say, as you pointed out, bubble shooters don't make money either. So yeah, yeah, they don't make any money compared to the slot machines or match threes and everything, which is why I kept losing my job. <laughs> yeah. The worst of both worlds. I I think they um your your statement there, Kyla, the uh, the passion statement ties back to what Ben kind of started this interview with as well. Um, going from a AAA studio to doing something that you really, really wanted to do. Um, and yeah, it's a labor and of God love. Bless, God bless Ben who basically bankrolled this whole project. Project, I just want to say, like we did get a publisher towards the end who got us money for like marketing and things like that, but none of this would have happened if Ben hadn't been like, you know, I want to invest in 
doing a passion project with some friends and like that's an amazing thing amazing and scary thing to do and so you know respect so uh it was scary <laughs> i bet i bet so on that note uh, where do you um where do you all see the indie scene going within the next couple of years um what what are you most excited about in, in um uh what kind of what kind of games do you envision uh, we'll have here in a couple of years? I can say I've been thrilled by the story of Valheim. And I assume, you know, he's been playing Valheim. It's got like 5 million players right now. That it was, I want to say, six French non-professional devs who made it. That um, I love this idea of with early access and with sort of Twitch democratizing the idea of game marketing a little bit, you see more games being made that target exactly what gamers want to play. I think that's super healthy, and it's because like it is easier to make indie games now, and it is easier to make people aware of indie games. But kind of a dark flip side of the coin is so many indie games come out that the signal-to-noise ratio is absolutely insane. And many people you can are absolutely really... make very good stuff that nobody hears about. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Anyhow, it's two sides of the same coin, and I don't know. It's just a change, and it's hard to call it either exclusively good or exclusively bad. But yeah. more people make games now. I I foresee, um, and this is maybe not exactly the future of the indie scene specifically, but um, I foresee a big expansion in the double A uh, genre because I think. Uh, we're starting to see, and this is a thing that my husband and I talk about and argue about all the time, but it seems like we're starting to see some cracks in the foundation at the AAA level where the the amount of money needed to make the, the big AAA monsters is just not, like, you can't make that back no matter how good your sales are, and you end up, like, having to rush it anyway, and you end up with, like, weird buggy messes that people hate you for releasing regardless, right? So I think, um, hopefully, if they learn anything from these big failures, we're going to see a lot of the really big companies investing in a lot of smaller projects rather than, like, two or three giant big tent poles just because it's safer. And hopefully that's, <laughs> hopefully that's good for the industry. Like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's going to be PS2 era all over again. Hell yes. Right, um, like as someone who really liked that era and thought that there was a lot of like very creative stuff coming out of PlayStation One, PlayStation Two kind of scene, especially from a lot of those like mid-sized studios or small teams with a big bankroll, um, from like a publisher or something like. Yeah, like instead yeah. of spending three hundred million dollars on a game, you could make thirty ten million dollar games, right? And, like, <laughs> uh, Valheim is a great uh game to mention in this kind of like uh being very economical and smart about how you approach it because the game scales insanely well that game could have sold very very poorly um and it would just be what it is and it wouldn't need anything more but because it sold super well uh you know the game servers are decentralized there's a lot of stuff that like they don't have like the issue that most mmos have when they blow up which is suddenly like oh god we have to support 10 times the number of people we're expecting on like our actual infrastructure that we own and have to manage and we're spending all that time dealing with those fires instead of the game uh valheim you know like the players are handling the server on their own ends and everything and like 
while there's definitely probably like a lot of scaling issues they still have to deal with it's they were very smart about like where they put their focus um mm -hmm. and very efficient with things you know the whole game is proc gen it's like one gig because it's all like lighting shader effects but very cheap models and very few of yeah. them um just, yeah i'm i'm honestly yeah. kind of surprised and impressed at how well the early access model has been doing like valheim and hades both like you know really blow up before they're done um done not that a game is ever done but you know <laughs> what I mean. um because there's so many drawbacks to doing early access and there's so much antipathy towards game marketing especially for like unfinished products that it's surprising to me how many indie hits come out of early access stuff and i think it's because early access gives you a chance to like really focus on what the gamers like because i think early access games that don't have a discord and actually listen to what their discord users post and like you know give weekly updates and be like these come from the community I think those early access games fail. And yeah, you, you don't know, hear about to, those ones. <laughs> yeah, the way to use early access is to really like, you know, iterate on finding the thing that your players love and also turning them into people who will proselytize your game because they feel like they got to play game designer a little bit. Their suggestions made it in. I don't know. That definitely is a way that seems to be getting more popular to successfully make your game absolutely monster huge. And honestly, I love the kind of like transparency with the process. I feel there's so many misunderstandings even today with like what game development is or what each job does and stuff like that, that like, I love seeing so much more of game developers uh, engaging with players and players approaching game developers with curiosity as opposed to like entitlement and stuff like that, you know, like they actually want to know about the process and honestly, because a lot of them want to do it themselves and uh, I think that's that's very cool. Like as far as like the indie scene goes, uh, I mean I'm still working on indie games, so I hope it's gonna be okay <laughs> by the time I ship my next game. Um, but the uh, I, I'm also very excited for like there. I feel there's a lot of very good talent um, that has been coming up, especially out of modding spaces and hobby spaces um, that had access to a lot of tools and engines and everything along the and like resources online that like many developers who are professionals now did not have when they're growing up um, so i could definitely see there being i don't know about like everybody you know being successful or anything but i could see an explosion of extremely high quality work and extremely interesting games uh coming out over the next decade just as a lot more of those like already i'm starting to see a lot of like the younger indies that we were showing with just coming up with some just very interesting stuff that does give me a lot of those like PlayStation era vibes uh, that I love I it when people do weird really experimental miss. stuff because they can. Like that's my favorite thing about indie games is that it doesn't have to be um, bubble shooters or and Halos, <laughs> right? <laughs> is that people are like, I had this weird idea and I really wanted to try it and see if it works. And I I hope that like people who do take risks like continue to be able to find a place to thrive because that's not easy. <laughs> And along those lines, uh, definitely random shout out to uh, the Calico team, uh, who I think they showed at Indie Mega Booth with us a couple times. Yeah. Um, as like that, that team definitely seems like people to watch. Uh, as far as like examples of like uh, just very like talented people that are bringing a lot of like really interesting ideas to like what games even are or should be uh, to the table. Um, it has a just like very emergent kind of playground aspect to it, and 
it's it's really great seeing players actually engage with um, a lot more games, kind of like Valheim and everything, that invite you to create a fun space to play yourself within their world. And like the world is conducive to certain things, um, but ultimately it's like players being very self-directed and curious about games, which I think as creatives gives us a lot more space to work, you know, so we don't have to make something that directly appeals to uh, what they're already expecting. And because, yeah, in addition to there being more creative devs entering the scene, I think there's going to be more creative players. And I think that's a very, very good thing. To say to say nothing of uh, our other writer's other game that he's working on right now, which is called Astronaut the Best, which is a very like weird experimental game, which I hope everybody checks out when it uh, when it's ready. Um, uh, astro uh, like space program simulator with just the worst astronauts. Um, it's a pretty it's a pretty wacky game. If you like the humor in Wintermore, you you should check out Astronaut the Best when it's ready. Uh, I'll definitely check that two out. Two dumb four dot space. That's their website. Yes, two dumb dot four space or two dumb four dot. No, space. two dumb four dot space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Got that rare dot space domain name. So um, with that, um, we're gonna wrap up the interview. Um, I want to thank you all for a fantastic time here uh, talking about Wintermore Tactics Club. Where can people find you online if they want to reach out to you? Uh, ben? Oh, yeah. So you can find us online at wintermoretc.com, or if you just want to get our delectable hot takes on Twitter, you can find me at WalkerB, W-A-L-K-E-R-B. Um, yeah, and I'm uh, my personal Twitter is at uh, Kyla underscore go, so K-Y-L-A underscore go. Um, and I also do a bi-weekly podcast with some friends. I know everybody does a podcast, but we do like a, a book club style thing for games called Feedback Force. Uh, so if you want to look up Feedback Force on SoundCloud, we play a lot of like, um, you know, weird indie games, among other things. Um, and, you know, we, we analyze the game design in them. Uh, and that's a fun time. So <laughs> You did Valheim, right? Uh, we're, we're thinking of doing Valheim. We haven't done Valheim yet. We're doing Loop Hero right now because Loop Hero is the other zeitgeist game. Yeah. So good. It's, Loop Hero is <laughs> quite good, yes. Um, yeah, and you can find me on the Twitter at R-Y-E-A-N-D-E-R, at Ryander. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I also do a podcast um, that is Pretentious Game Ideas. Um, I think our most recent episode is actually the Wintermore one. Um, so that that's more of a deep dive on like specific combat things, but uh, yeah, and that that one's a lot more just me interviewing random people from the industry with some of my friends and talking about different games and specifically like a mechanic or like a major trope in a lot of games and kind of like elaborating it where it's used well, where it's used badly, like the kind of impact it has. So it's meant as like if you're a game design student or something. Like I think most of our audience is. Uh, game design college students <laughs> so uh but yeah that's that's what you're interested in it's we we talk to some people who are much better game designers than i am so you can you can pick their brains vicariously through me did you say what the name of the podcast is yes pretentious game ideas oh that's the name oh, okay i thought that oh, was just subject. no no yeah i mean there are <laughs> I, I do feel a lot of pretentious game ideas but um no it is actually yeah it's it's an inside joke <laughs> All right. as most podcasts are 
I love it. I love it. And uh, yeah, I'm Jonas Rosland at Jonas Rosland on the Twitter, and of course hitsave.org and at hitsaveorg is our Twitter. Uh, and with that, thank you, Ben, Kyla, and Ryan for a fantastic time talking about Wintermore Tactics Club. It's been super, super fun. Until next time, have a good one. <laughs>